Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, the focus of this interview is going to be on a solution created by a Yale economist and his colleagues to address the rising and unsustainable costs of healthcare in our country. A lot of us are vaguely aware of this problem, but our guest today convincingly argues that the costs of healthcare are devastating to American workers and families. His approach to solving this massive problem is unique, and I'm super excited to explore it with you today. Before we introduce our guest, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, here's what you can do. As soon as you're done listening to the podcast or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to share it with three colleagues or, or just blast it out to your professional listserv, your LinkedIn account. I've heard back from a few of you over the past month or two, and I, I just want to say I am so appreciative for you taking a moment to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So getting back to the podcast, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Zach Cooper. Zach Cooper is an associate professor of health policy and of economics at Yale University, where he also serves as director of health policy at the school's Institute for Social and Policy Studies. The focus of his work is on the impact of competition in hospital and insurance markets, the influence of price transparency on consumer behavior, and the influence of electoral politics on healthcare spending growth. Cooper has published his research in leading economics and medical journals, including the Quarterly Journal of Economics and the New England Journal of Medicine. He has also presented his research at the White House, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Health and Human Services. The New York Times wrote that Zach Cooper's work is likely to force a rethinking of some conventional wisdom about healthcare. Zach received his undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago and his doctoral work from the London School of Economics. Zach, it's such a pleasure to have you on the program today. How are you? I am good. It's great to be with you. It's great to be back. We had a, a fun conversation now. It feels like an eternity ago. But yeah, stoked to, to keep the conversation going. I've been tracking you on Twitter and uh, been uh, looking at the website. And so really excited, uh, as you know, to be speaking with you again. We're going to be focusing, you know, the last time we spoke, you mentioned that you were, I think, just beginning or just thinking about this 1% initiative or project. And before we dive into it, and we're going to spend uh, most of our time talking about that. What is the problem that you and your colleagues are trying to solve, and what led up to this idea of this uh, project? Yeah, so the the problem we're trying to solve is, you know, we as a country just spend a shocking amount on healthcare without getting, I think, our our money's worth. So it's a fairly inefficient system, and I think there's sort of challenges with that on on two fronts. The first is just the, the absolute dollars we spend put a lot of weight on American families. So one of the, the numbers that I like to, to cite is a health insurance plan for a family of four It's about the cost of a new Toyota Corolla. And so we're in a position where every family is basically buying a new Toyota Corolla worth of insurance every year. And 
And I, I think for folks who you know, have six-figure incomes who are, are white-collar, it's an inconvenience or, or it's pressure, but it's navigable. I think the challenge is not just that, that we have insurance that's that expensive, it's sort of that expensive for everybody. And so I think there are a lot of families in the country who, who frankly are, are just getting crushed by the, the cost of healthcare um, that they're facing. And so this is sort of a project that's focused on I think teasing out what we could actually do to reduce healthcare spending. So I think we all sort of talk about wanting to do it. This is sort of trying to say, look, what are some tangible steps that we could take as a country that would move the ball forward, move the needle on, on making the system more efficient? I think the second challenge, and, and sorry to, to drone on a little bit with, with high healthcare costs, is I think from a, a sort of business and, and sort of government perspective, it crowds out other spending that could just help people and, and improve lives more. And you know, one of the you know, one of the, the projects really about sort of identifying discrete problems in the health system, offering tangible solutions. We talk about 1% steps because you know, we sort of were aiming for interventions that reduced healthcare spending by about 1%. And you know, a lot of folks were like, ah, hey, 1%, like what, what's the big deal there? And you know, the point is each 1% step that we recommend in the project, because the health system's so big, generates a ton of money. A 1% step, by our estimation, basically would fund universal pre-K in the US for a year. And you know, that for me is the sort of tragedy of healthcare in this country. If our goal is really to extend life, to improve quality of life, frankly, that's where we should be spending it, early childhood education. And these sort of ridiculous inefficiencies in the U.S. are sort of stopping us from spending where we should be. And what we want to do is you know, hopefully offer some insight into to ways we can improve the system. Zach, that's such a, an important point that is really brought up, this notion that we don't have an infinite amount of money and the government doesn't have an infinite amount of money. And that's true for not just the federal government, but state and local governments. So if you're spending it on healthcare, to your point, you're not spending it on other uh, infrastructure as well as uh, other public goods like education. And that number is astounding that, you know, people might ask the question, you know, what's 1%? Well, like you just said, I I think that is worth repeating. 1% of healthcare costs could fund universal pre-K throughout the entire United States. Why did you pick that particular, I I have a bias about it, or I've actually done a recent interview which uh, enlightened me about the importance of uh, pre-k what it means to individuals who go through pre-k versus those who don't uh, i'm curious why you pick that particular part of education it's the point really that you just made i mean i think the evidence is very very clear about how early life intervention can pay real dividends across the life course and and so i just think it's it's one of these areas where yeah, maybe taking a step back and then we can get back into the universal pre-K. And I've been pretty, uh, captivated is not the right word because it sort of implies that it's positive, but, but sort of really gripped by a lot of the, the evidence coming out of that economic inequality in the U.S. And just the, the, real, the real challenges we face in the, in the country with economic inequality, but in particular uh, inequality of opportunity. and 
think one of the challenges that I see and how this links so close to the, the healthcare system is, you know, one of my, my mentors, Ufa Reinhardt, used to say, you know, a dollar of healthcare spending is, is really a, a dollar of somebody's income. And I think one of the challenges is when you think about sort of where the money in the health system goes, it sort of doesn't go evenly across the income distribution. Um, this doesn't make me sort of super popular when I, I raise it with my physician friends, but if you look at the top 1% of wage earners in the country, the, the highest share in that bracket by profession are, are physicians. Now that, that's good and, and I want our, our doctors pay well, but in a sense, what I think we've ended up with is a health system that sort of heavily weighs on some of the most vulnerable in the country um, that, that directs income certainly to, to wealthy doctors, but, but also to really big companies and you know, private equity firms and increasingly that crowds out the type of programs that I think could actually narrow the achievement gap and then create more opportunity. So I think you know, increasing a lot of the work that I'm doing is sort of thinking about the extent to which our inefficient healthcare system is, is not just sort of bad in its own right, but is, is actually leading to some of the, the bigger structural problems we're seeing across the country right now. I'm trying to understand specifically what you're saying in terms of is the waste in healthcare or is the excess cost, how does it contribute to that inequity and to the unlevel playing field? Yeah, and you know, preface this by saying this is sort of the work I'm doing now. So I, I try when I go on on podcasts to sort of talk about stuff that that's fully baked. Maybe this is a little a little less baked, but I think so. So take a step back. You know, I, I think there are just sort of big structural problems in the U.S. economy writ large um, that sort of center on differences in economic opportunity across groups of people. Um, that is, a, I think, in particular, folks with a college degree just have many more opportunities than folks without, almost to such an extent now that it's very, very hard to empathize and sort of just understand the real fragility that a large percentage of the electorate and of the country is facing. So some of my, my colleagues at Princeton, Ann Case and, and Angus Deaton, talk about deaths of despair, that you, you've actually seen life expectancy go down for non-college educated whites in the U.S. in the 2000s. And that's sort of like, it's just not a precedent in developed countries to see life expectancy go down. It just it doesn't happen. And it's going down in part because of a huge rise in what they call deaths of despair. So these are suicides and, and overdoses. Uh, in particular. And it, they put forward, it, it isn't me, they, they put forward this hypothesis that, that it actually might be healthcare that, that's really contributing. So I'll sort of give you the example um, of how I think that, that plays out. So you can imagine a, a, a town in the Rust Belt in the U.S. that's experienced some, some, some trade-induced economic stagnation. You know, so uh, the mills, the factories there are competing against um, factories overseas, they're struggling, there are fewer jobs, and there may be two hospitals there. They, they can't support them, so either one closes or, or there's a merger. In the wake of that hospital merger, that hospital has the opportunity to, to raise their prices. We know pretty clearly that when hospitals merge, when they 
they get market power that allows them and that they do raise their prices. Okay, so now all of a sudden that hospital raises its prices. What are the knock-on effects of that? Well, there's now more money coming into the hospital um, that in some ways going to get distributed to the people who work in that hospital who tend to be college educated. So it's sort of more opportunities for that block. Well, who pays for it? Ultimately, we as the public pay for higher healthcare costs. It comes out of our income. Um, it also narrows the tax base because a lot of the, the money we spend on healthcare isn't taxed. So hospitals merge, premiums go up. Um, that means lower wages for the folks living in those regions. It means a narrower tax base because we don't pay tax on, on healthcare costs. And I think ultimately that then sort of trickles down. So because it becomes harder and more expensive to hire workers, you see more folks ending up in the gig economy because it's you know, the, the cost of employing somebody when a hospital's merged be, raises the, the, the amount you'd have to pay them. You see fewer jobs. And so it's this sort of, you know, whatever the opposite is of a, a trickle down, it, it's the changes that we see structurally in healthcare. Um, I think just putting pressure on the folks who are the most vulnerable in our country. And, you know, I, I think that's sort of, I'm just really interested in studying, you know, whether that's exactly what we see. I mean, that, that's the hypothesis I have. That's what sort of wakes me up in the morning, makes me want to go to work and, and do the research we're doing. And I think we'll, we'll see over the next couple of years, whether that's, that's true. I know you're such a data-driven person that you don't like to make statements unless they're supported by research and evidence. So I know you've taught me that lesson over and over again. I mean, this is a bigger topic, you know, and it isn't necessarily the focus of, of this interview, but I do think, and I agree with you, it is such a, you use the word gripping or captivated. I, I would agree with you. It Increasingly, it's on my mind. We're doing a lot of work in this domain as well. And, and it does tie in with your work, which is really about understanding issues in a data-driven way and uh, that can impact policy and make a change for the better for, you know, in our country. So, I mean, there's so much more to say about this, but but I, I do want to get back to really the focus of, of work that you have been doing. I'm going to take you a little off base and, and you can, you know, give me a, take me to the woodshed after. But, uh, you know, I think this view, uh, I sort of coarsened a little bit over the course of our work on surprise billing. And I guess this is connected because our, our sort of work on surprise billing, I think is a good example of a, a 1% problem. So you know, what is it, you know, I as a patient can go to an in-network hospital, I can get treated by an out-of-network physician. And, and if I am, I can potentially get a really, really big bill. And we think the solution to surprise billing, uh, we estimated it was going to get about 3% of, of commercial spending, which is about 1% of total healthcare costs. Um, that's about what it was scored by the Congressional Budget Office. The, the Trump administration, President Trump signed into law surprise billing protections in, in December 2020. This issue got fixed. In all of our work on it, one of the things that, that just jumped out at me was sort of who was affected and who benefited. And, and it really sort of just, it, it frankly hardened me. Um, you know, when we looked at who the folks were who were getting balanced bills, that is sort of taken to, to court or, or sent these large bills by, by these emergency physician companies, it actually often wasn't the, the most affluent. So they ended up, the, the folks working at, at big companies had really good insurance that stepped up and, and paid their out-of-network bills. 
it was the folks who were buying health insurance on exchanges. It was the folks who were you know, not in these gold-plated health insurance plans who were getting hit with these thousands, thousand-dollar bills. And we know from you know, work that the, the Federal Reserve does, the average American doesn't have $400 in savings at any given moment. And so for these folks who are doing the right thing, right, they're, they're paying their insurance premiums. They went to an in-network hospital. They didn't do anything wrong. They get hit with a $1,000 bill that you know, bankrupts them. Um, it's just not cool. And, and who did that money go to? You know, in this case, it, it went, I think, to, to two places. Um, it went to the companies that were owning these physician staffing companies, which were you know, a company called MCare, one called Team Health, that were owned by, by large private equity firms. And then it went to emergency physicians who were getting paid uh, more per visit. And I was just getting the, the nastiest emails and letters and calls from, from some emergency physicians really upset with the work that I was doing. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, look, I'm just, I'll be honest, I'm cool with you earning a percent or two less. If it means somebody's earning $35,000 doesn't get financially ruined if they get into a car accident. And I guess like, you know, what I'd say to them is just sort of sorry, I'm not sorry. Like, and you know, that, I think that view is just, you know, as I think about healthcare, I, I sort of, I guess, hardened a little bit around, around that view. It's amazing. I didn't realize that the surprise medical billing equaled 1% you're saying of the yeah. total, of total, total healthcare spending in this country. Yeah. That's a, wow. a huge number. I did see somewhere you, you wrote, I think it was in your website that, that it's about $60 billion a year, mm-hmm. which is which is a phenomenal amount just to one problem. Can you briefly summarize what the solution, uh, that 1% solution would be to surprise medical billing? Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's the solution we recommended, which uh, it was on a call with uh, Lamar Alexander when he was a senator. This was maybe three years ago. It was like, look, great solution. I totally agree with it, but it, it has no political chances of passing. So what we... What we said is, look, you know, when somebody consumes the care of hospital-based physicians, so whether they're they're getting care from an anesthesiologist or a radiologist or a neonatologist or an emergency room physician, they're not really consuming that individual item. They're consuming a package of care delivered by a hospital. Um, in the same way that when I go to a restaurant, I'm sort of shouldn't get a, a bill for my bread that's separate from the bill for my drink and the, the bill for my dinner. We basically said, look, you just have a hospital negotiate a, a payment rate that includes those physician services, almost identically to the way they do for nursing care, right? I don't, I don't separately pay the, the nurse at the hospital from, from the hospital itself. And, you know, I think we spent a lot of time walking uh, through this economic theory in an article. If you sort of nudge hospitals to sell this package, it, it eliminates all these out-of-network bills, and then it sort of restores a, a competitive equilibrium for for those physicians' prices. Um, what we ended up seeing get signed into law was a, a version of a package, actually, that was first tried in New York that, that was successful, um, that had two components. Um, the first was, it basically said, look, if you're a patient who goes to an in-network hospital and through no fault of your own get treated by an out-of-network physician, you're, you're what's called held harmless. You're only subject to, to in-network cost sharing. Um, second, it said, look, if there's a dispute between a physician and an insurer, we're going to introduce what's called a baseball rules arbitration process. Um, so they're basically going to bring in an arbiter 
or an arbitrator who who requests one bid from the uh, physician, one offer uh, from the insurance company, and then they select one of those two as the negotiated payment. Um, we show in New York that this lowered the incidence of out-of-network billing by 88%, and then actually lowered healthcare spending as well. So I think it's it's not a perfect bill. It's not what I would have sort of designed if I had a, a throne, a crown, and a scepter, but I, I think it'll make people's lives better. Was the arbitration itself, was that the deterrent? So it was the insurance companies didn't want to have to do that over and over again? Yeah, so I think it was funny because it was, I guess maybe this is a sign of why it was political compromise or nobody liked it. I think the physicians, a lot of the, the debate on the physician side was about what the arbitrator could consider. So, you know, you could imagine a world where the arbitrator considered the physician's charges, their in-network payments, Medicare rates and Medicaid rates. And um, when you're considering all that data, maybe what the physician's charging looks a little high. Um, I think the insurers were worried that basically every case would end up in arbitration um, and that those sort of admin costs ultimately would would sort of raise medical spend. Um, I actually think it, it frankly isn't, I think it's a pretty good bill. I, I think what happens with arbitration is once folks get the rules of the road, they then don't want to send every case to arbitration because they sort of know what's going to happen and it sort of nudges parties to to reach settlements, which is what I think will happen in this case. That, that's a great example. It, it also, I think it demonstrates what I've heard you talk about and write about is the fact that in this approach you're, you're putting together, you have, I'd like you to maybe articulate this sort of the connection between why is it that academics are important here? Why is it that, you know, we need healthcare economists to be part of the solution and what's the role of government? And it seems there's like an ecosystem or, you know, partnership approach here that, uh, that you've created. Could you say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, so in me talking about why my work is important, that's an easy question. No, um, so <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, so I think, uh, so a couple, a couple sort of thoughts. When I looked at my colleagues' engagement on policy, I, I think too often I sort of saw them dunking on what didn't work and not sort of saying what they do. And what I wanted to do was sort of say, look, like, let's, let's put the feet, your feet to the fire. Let's, let's see you based on my research. Here's you know, evidence-based interventions that can lower healthcare costs. And lo and behold, when you sort of say that to somebody and you, you make them write something up and, and have their name on it, what gets produced sort of aren't like miraculous, you know, miracle cures to healthcare in the U.S. They're sort of discrete changes. And... I, I think that was really the, you know, one of the insights of the, the project. Like it's, there, there aren't silver bullets. It's just these series of discrete evidence-based changes that like the, the academics aren't, you know, we're not splitting atoms here on the, the weekends. We're, we're just sort of more like plumbers and we're, you know, fixing sort of leaky pipes in the healthcare system using evidence. Now, I think the evidence really matters is, I think, in, in sort of two respects. The first is you know, the healthcare industry, you know, the healthcare sector is one of the most heavily lobbied industries in, in the country. And I think there's so much noise that having independent, peer-reviewed research drive the policy process you know, or sort of helping inform policy process is just sort of tremendously important. Um, so I think that's 
that's sort of part of my my goal is, is to sort of say, look, like there's what the stakeholders want, and then there's just like what the evidence is of, of what works. I think the other is in a sort of world of of heavy, in some instances, hyper partisanship. It's nice to have evidence that that's just sort of I don't want to say it's fact, but is 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 just sort of independent put out there that says, look, here's here's what the world looks like. And I think one of the the lessons that I got from surprise billing and, and some of my work on hospital competition is that when you sort of and I try to be really careful about it, but talk about it in in sort of positive as opposed to normative terms, just sort of say, look, here here's what the data are, here's what the data show, as opposed to like, you know, here's me editorializing on the, the research. I think when you go out there and say, look, like here's the evidence on what happens when a hospital merges. Here's what happens when a hospital buys a physician practice. Here's why surprise billing happens and what you can do to fix it. It, I think, turns down the temperature on the stove a little bit and I think allows elected officials to then engage, I think, a little more directly with the issue as opposed to, say, the, the sort of bigger things that, that divide political parties. I, I love the reframe. So you're, you're looking at your healthcare economist colleagues and saying, let's not critique, let's actually focus on an issue and come up with evidence-based ways to actually solve a problem and demonstrate that it does actually, if you do this, it will work. I think that's brilliant. First of all, how many of these 1% solutions have you already come up with, you and your colleagues, and who exactly are you working with? Who are you, who are you recruiting to do this work? Yeah. So we got 16 briefs by, I get the number maybe a little off, by, by about 25 to, to 30 of my colleagues. Um, and what I actually did was I reached out to, I basically like reached out to the folks, a lot of folks in the sort of health economics space um, whose work I adored. Um, and often I'd sort of say, look, like here's a paper you've written that I think is really good that has a, a really tangible policy hook. Can we sort of distill this down into a three to five page brief that identifies an issue and makes a very, very concrete recommendation? And you know, got, I think a lot of the, the sort of heaviest hitters in, in health economics, I mean, so folks like you know, John Skinner at Dartmouth, who does this amazing work looking at, at variation in healthcare spending. And in his work, he, he's talking about the, the role of healthcare fraud in, in, um, in home health. Um, we've got Amy Finkelstein, who's at MIT. We've got John Gruber, um, Ashley Swanson, who's at, uh, at Columbia. I mean, all just sort of people whose work I adore. Uh, my colleague, Shimon Dumoulin at, at Yale. And, you know, the, the key for me was that the recommendations that folks made were based on their scholarship. And, you know, I think we had, or my team had found some success over the last couple of years, engaging with policymakers. And what we wanted to do was, I think, twofold for the academic community. One, sort of take the work that was already being done, distill it a little bit, and then work with those scholars to, to get them in front of, of some of the leading folks doing health policy in the House and, and in the Senate at the White House. I think the second, and maybe this is just like a more ambitious objective, we'll see if it, it plays out over the next couple of years. I sort of hope that if I could get the leading folks in health economics to do these briefs, 
it would hopefully motivate the next generation of scholars to say, look, like I want to do some research that offers evidence on tangible things that we could do. Like I want to do stuff that has policy relevance. And I, like, I, I think my, my colleagues in the, I don't know, the, the English literature department, like I, they do great work and, and super, super important that they're there and, and we need the humanities. But I, I think if you're going to be somebody who does like the economics of healthcare, like you got to do something relevant with it. Like you, you can't just be stamp collecting. Like I, I think there's really a sort of a, an obligation that we do work that, that isn't just sort of solving crossword puzzles, but, but hopefully suggests what we can do about policy and, and gets out there and, and hopefully makes people's lives a little better. I mean, first of all, the names, I'm not an expert in healthcare economics, but I recognize those names. I mean, these are the who's who of healthcare economists. Yeah, no, it's, it's the heavy hitters. Like it's like the, a lot of really good folks agreed. And, and that was actually, it was funny. We did a, an event in the whole thing got sort of waylaid by the, the pandemic. Um, we we're supposed to launch probably about a year and a half ago, but we had an event in uh, uh, Washington, DC that was, it was pretty amazing. So I, I, we reached out to a bunch of, of sort of Hill folks and, and said, look, like we're going to bring all the academics down and, you know, will you come? We'll sort of have a thing off of the Hill where everyone's going to get together and sort of talk about these issues. And when I, I introduced the, the project and introduced the event, it really, being brutally honest, when I first reached out to my colleagues um, to see if they wanted to contribute, um, I was sort of terrified. And then they all said yes. I was like, oh man, now I actually have to, you know, make this thing, make this thing work. So it was like, cool. They said, yes. Then we reach out to all the policy people and, you know, would you want to come? And they all said, yes. And, you know, then you're like, oh gosh, now the pressure's really on because we've got to actually deliver. But I, I think what it speaks to is I think a hunger, like there, there's plenty of, there's no reason, there are lots of reasons you could be cynical. Um, but I think like, if nothing else, one of the things that showed me was, bipartisan basis in DC within the academic community, there is a desire to, to do good. It's just pretty hard. And, and I think what was cool is just to see my colleagues sort of step up and say, Hey, this isn't a crazy idea. Like we want to put policy out there that will hopefully make a difference. So even if it's incremental. I was going to ask you, you know, what is the reception by the folks, uh, the, the, the policy folks and the folks in the Senate and then the house. And it sounds like, there's an interest in this work. I, there is, you know, I think in particular the, the stuff in this, in this iteration. So we have a, we have what, 16 proposals. They're pretty technocratic. Um, you know, they range from steps that we could take to increase organ donation. And it turns out each transplant, each kidney transplant, the Medicare program does, or the country does saves the Medicare program, about $150,000. Um, so it's steps to, to increase organ donation. There's work um, changing the sort of wiring of about how we pay for physician-administered drugs. There's some stuff on antitrust. I mean, it's pretty pretty geeky stuff. And and I think what the policy community or the, the more actually the political community likes is that these are what they refer to as pay-fors. Um, so there are things that you can include in bills that pay for other things that sort of lower the federal spend. Um, so there's sort of discrete interventions that can save money that you can either use to, to lower taxes or, or offset spending in, in other areas. And 
I actually think on a frankly bipartisan basis, we've gotten a, a really positive response. Now there's some things where, you know, the political community is like, look, this is this is just a non-starter. Like there there is no way this is going to happen. But I'd say for for most of the briefs, the response has been really really positive. Yeah. How many of these are you thinking you'll try to create in the next year or so? Is this uh, just ongoing work? Or? Yeah, it's ongoing. I mean, I think some of it I, I want to exhale a little bit and get back to my my day job that's that's doing research. But, you know, we wanted to, you know, we've had a couple of folks reach out with some really cool ideas that will help produce. Um, and then, you know, we're going to continue, I think, just looking at, I think this is going to change the way I sort of view academic conferences. So when I go to the, we have this group of economists, it's the National Bureau of Economics Research, the, the MBER. Like when I go to the MBER health meeting, like it's going to change the way I think about papers. And so I think if I, I see a paper that has really clear policy implications, I'll you know, beg and, and plead with the author to, uh, to turn it into one of these three to five page briefs. And you know, hopefully over time, we get more and more of these and offer a menu to policymakers. Um, you know, I, I was struck, this is actually, it's not about the US, it's about the UK. I went, God, it must have been, it was probably six years ago, seven years ago. I met with, I was at Downing Street, so the prime minister's office, and I was meeting with the health policy advisor to, to David Cameron. And it's a really cool building. You sort of walk through gates, and, and I'm sort of trying to think of what the movie is with Hugh Grant and having like images from that, that movie. And uh, about a boy, I think it was a uh, love. Actually, that was that was more. And the the advisor at the time was like, "So, what would you do to lower healthcare costs here?" I'm like, "Oh no, you're not, not going to actually ask me that. Like, I'm I'm here to talk about you know esoteric stuff that, that doesn't actually matter, you know." But when he actually said, "Like, what would you do?" It was sort of eye opening that I didn't have a great answer, and and that was really the goal of this project was, look, like we're not going to offer silver bullets because I actually don't think there are any. We're going to offer discrete, tangible interventions, and hopefully we have a menu of options available for policymakers at the state and federal level that that they can access and use. And, and then they can know that, look, there's this group of academics who, who want to help and who are available to talk things through. And I just think like more conversations, more evidence, more engagement, that's, that's got to be at least a step in the right direction. Why aren't you out there recruiting economists and saying, start to redirect your work to focus on solutions. Use your evidence-based capabilities to do that. I'm just kind of wondering if you've thought about that or if you, you're already doing it. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what we're trying to do is just get people to, to look at policy-relevant questions. Now, I think, I think there's, there are a bunch of things that make it hard, but, but a couple jump out. You know, I think the first is you know, all politics are local and you know, academics – you know, we, we have a 10-year process that's reliant on producing, you know, an economics articles and a, a really small subset of journals. And, you know, those in many instances have huge policy relevance, but don't need to. And, you know, it's for a separate conversation if that's good or bad, but, but I think, you know, folks rightly want to move up in, in their particular sort of professions. And, and that often isn't sort of perfectly aligned with producing research that can say sort of what Congress should do next month to, to reduce healthcare costs. Um, so I think that's one. I think the second is producing work that's policy relevant often, you know, the, the basis of, of all good research is asking good questions. And 
I think you need exposure to policymakers and the policymaking process to be able to ask the right question. And so my hope is, you know, part of what we can do is bring policymakers and elected officials closer to, to the group of academics who do want to work in this area, and that that then germinates and, and leads to, to, to more of this. We actually, so the, maybe a year ago, I think Yale came to, came to the belief that we weren't actually doing enough in this area. And so we launched the Tobin Center for Economic Policy that, that I'm helping run with a colleague. And, and this is actually our, our stated mission, which is to, to promote and drive more policy-relevant research at Yale. And you know, this project was sort of one of our first big initiatives. And you know, part of the goal is not just to have more Yale academics doing stuff that's relevant for policy, but to try to get scholars from you know, other institutions and, and, and other places doing it as well. Yeah. Uh, no, this is fantastic. Now, if someone was interested in going online and finding out about this work, where could they go? 1%steps.com. We'll, we'll take them to the project. Um, if you just Google 1% steps and, and me, it'll, it'll come out. And it, you'll, you'll see the, I think the 16 briefs that we've written, they're all pretty accessible. Some, you know, overarching facts about the U.S. healthcare system and why we think that this is a, well, we think it's a, a potentially sort of a, a decent way to, to maybe move the needle on reducing healthcare costs. I think what you're doing is so, uh, you know, this reframing is really refreshing. It's really positive. It's really hopeful. It's really, po- I mean, it's just, it's the right thing. And it's for a problem that is just devastating to the country, the healthcare costs, people don't understand how serious. And to your point, it has its fingers in so many places and, and is destroying and disrupting lives in so many ways that we don't understand. It's not just, you know, we have high healthcare costs. It, it, the problem is, is just much deeper than that and impacting families, the vast majority of families and individuals in this country. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. It's rapid fire here. You do focus on supply side versus demand side. Your work, and you, you've cited articles on this that, you know, let's not focus on the patients. It's, let's focus on the doctors because that's where the decisions are made. And I may be mischaracterizing it, but could you just say a word about that? Yeah, and and I'll be I'll be pretty quick. So first, like demand side is is patient supply side, or sort of the people who produce healthcare. So sort of providers writ large. Um, I just think for the last thirty years, we sort of fetishized things that bash patients over the head with either information or or frankly financial penalties. And I think there's enough work out there now that we can pretty conclusively say that that doing that doesn't hitting patients over the head with with more cost sharing doesn't do much other than inflict economic pain on patients. You know, I think what cost sharing can do is stop patients from touching the healthcare system. I actually think it does that pretty well. Um, but once patients engage in the, in the, once they've engaged with a healthcare provider, what really matters is what that, that healthcare provider does for herself. And you know, if you look at the briefs, many of them, most of them are, are really focused on how you incentivize healthcare providers to offer better care or how you create market conditions that incentivize, create competition that, that lower prices and, and, and raise quality. You're not going to see much in this project at all that's focused on you know, trying to use financial incentives to get patients to, to make better choices. I, I think we've, we've heard that movie. We've watched that a, a bunch of times. And you know, there's a study actually out maybe two weeks ago by Amitabh Chandra and colleagues showed basically a, a 10% or excuse me, a $10 increase in co-pays in the Medicare Advantage or Medicare Part D program 
led to huge increases in death rates, um, in part because people stopped taking drugs like statins, which keep you alive. Um, and, and I just think like that's not, we're trying to get water from a rock and we need to really focus on, on how we incentivize healthcare providers. You know, that is such, I'm glad I asked the question because that is such a critically important point. You hear so many people, and again, this is the non-evidence based, uh, you know, healthcare economics voice that, you know, patients have to have skin in the game, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think it's really important what you just said. We've watched that movie. It doesn't work. What it does is get people not to use healthcare. And as a result, uh, they get sicker. And I would love for you to send that article. In fact, if you, if you reference, I'll, I'll include it in the notes for the, the show. I just think it's such an important misconception, a myth that uh, to your point is killing people, is killing patients um, when we go down that route. It's snake oil. I, mean, I just think like we, we've got enough evidence now to know that beating patients over the head with, with higher deductibles will stop them consuming, um, but it isn't the, the sort of silver bullet to, to framing in healthcare costs in this country. You know, in our correspondence, you mentioned that if you had the chance to offer President Biden uh, some recommendations, you would suggest that he remove the tax exemption for employer-sponsored health insurance. Now, this is decades. I mean, we since World War II, this is how it's how the systems worked. I mean, this is half of all healthcare costs are paid for by employers in large part because they're tax exempt. So, why do you want to get rid of it? Well, okay. So take a step back. Like, would I? I think. And I think we talked about it a little bit like that would be what I said if, if we were just ignoring all political constraints. So I think like if I were meeting today, that wouldn't be the advice I would give just given the constraints of the world. What I'd say is focus on on antitrust reform. You know, I think if we had sort of. No political constraints, that would be what I'd address, because I think a lot of the problems in our healthcare system can be traced back to this sort of bizarre link between. Uh, the tax treatment of employer-sponsored healthcare coverage um, between that and, and sort of employment. Like it, it really dated back to, to World War II wage controls. And, you know, one of the challenges with the way our tax code is, is written is that I as a firm, you know, can only really, because of tax rates, I can give you a dollar of health insurance in compensation, or I can give you a, a dollar that's taxed in income. So I can sort of I get more bank literally for my buck by giving you help, more generous health insurance than I do by, by giving you income. What does that do? It leads to overly generous health insurance coverage. So that's the, the first problem. We sort of incentivize companies to give too much health insurance coverage. The second, and I think actually the, the more pernicious problem, is that it's it separated folks from the price of health care. Um, so I, I'll just use myself as an example. Like I should be a pretty sort of savvy healthcare consumer. I have no idea what my insurance premiums are, and I have no idea how much they went up over the last five or six years. Like all I know is Yale sends me a paycheck, and they've taken out my insurance premiums from that. Um, I don't know sort of counterfactually how much higher my wages would have been, be it not for my, you know, healthcare. So it's. I think you know we, we sort of saw this play out with the health insurance exchanges, where a lot of the the big health insurers took a bath on these exchanges because they were so used to offering employer-sponsored plans where patients are pretty price insensitive. But all of a sudden, when they were on on the individual market, where people were choosing between plans and didn't want to get you know, the the most expensive option, these these sort of large incumbents lost out. So I think that we 
separate people from the cost of their health insurance plans. And while we're doing it, encourage them to buy more generous policies. That's just a, a big, big issue. Um, the other is, is, I think, you know, just more generally, tying health insurance to employment just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and I think we certainly saw that play out in the pandemic, which is that, like, we had the unique experience of a massive economic shock that was driven by a, a infectious disease. The infectious disease led to contractions in the economy, which led to people from getting fired, which led them to lose their, their health insurance. I mean, it's just a, in no universe is that a sort of rational way to, to structure your insurance market. No, I, I agree. And it was millions and billions. I forget if it was 7 million or 10 or, I mean, just millions of people who lost health insurance. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm somebody who wants to, you know, say I want to start the next Amazon out of my garage, so I'm going to quit my, my business that offers me health insurance. Like I, I shouldn't forego pursuing that enterprise because I'm worried that my insurance premium is going to go up or that I'm not going to be able to buy healthcare. It's just like, why would you want to have healthcare? Healthcare should sort of make us better. It should make us whole. It should sort of support the flourishing of, of people in the economy. Instead, it's the sort of massive weight tied around our ankle that's sort of dragging everybody down. It's just sort of a, it's almost the, the opposite of, of, I think, what a, what a healthcare system should do. If you do get a chance to speak to President Biden, if that would be the first uh, suggestion on your list, right? No, I, I mean, it, it, honestly, if I sat there today, like certainly I'd bring up the 1% steps project. Um, if I had to say, look, what are three concrete changes? It would be increasing the, the antitrust enforcement budget for the DOJ and the FTC. Um, it'd be getting rid of, it'd be introducing site neutral payments to the Medicare program so that if you did an MRI in a doctor's office versus a hospital, we'd get the, the same reimbursement. Um, I think my third is I'd probably do everything within my power to increase organ transplantation and organ donation rates. I, I actually think the, the impact of that, both on people's lives, but also on spending is, uh, is really big. Um, now, just you know, one non-sequitur, and I, I'm bad at this, so stop me if you need to, but we, um, we did a class, a, a group of, of Chinese executives came to Yale a couple of years ago who were starting a health insurance business in China. And it was sort of so cool to think about like what you would design if you were starting from scratch, right? So much of the work I do, and I'm sure the work you do, is like, how do you, how do you fix this, you know, leaky, you know, leaky motor that's inefficient, the, you know, this car that nobody wants to drive in the US? Like, what would you do if you could just start from scratch? And, you know, I, I think that's one of the things to think about. Like, if we were to start from scratch, the health system we create wouldn't look anything like the one we have. And, you know, I think sometimes we just get, we sort of set our horizon artificially low because we're just sort of numb to the, the realities of the system we're in. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we have people like you who uh, shed some reality on a very, very complicated and legacy-based system, which has to change. I mean, that's why we're talking about it. That's why you're doing your work. I'm doing my work. We have to make these changes, regardless of how challenging they are politically or otherwise. Thank you so much. Uh, and as I do every episode, I'm going to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I, and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals families, communities, and our society. 
This is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well. And again, Zach Cooper, can't thank you enough. Likewise, thank you. I totally echo what you just said. <laughs> Take care, Zach. Bye-bye.